Thanks very much, Matt and Hannah. Um, just to let you know that um, most of you are aware, but Hannah ran our Facebook page and um, did a lot of advertising through social media and did different things. And of course, yeah, you can still do that in Alice because it's all online, but no, we won't make you do that. Um, yeah, so there's an opening. If you uh, feel that you have that kind of skill or if that's something that interests you, um, just pray about it and um, see where God leads you. And yeah, we'll see where we go from there. Um, as you would know, I was away last week because I took a service at the Raman Centre. Um, our church has been asked um, if we were able to go in and do a service there. And I've, I've offered um, to do it every two months. I don't know if I've bit off more than I can chew. Um, but yeah, people have asked me how it went. It was, it was really good. And um, I used to be involved in prison work when I, when I lived here before. What I like about prison work is it's real. Um, so in the Raman Centre, there are eight units and they choose a different unit to come down each week um, for chapel services. And last week we had the protective unit come down and we had 14 guys um, come and be part of our church service. The way the church service works, it's quite interactual. So obviously they're not Baptist, um, which is good. Um, but yeah, so when, the, when people were reading the Bible, they'd read something. And so who do you identify with is, as I'm reading this? And the chaplain also had um, pictures of different things. And what do you see in this picture? And, and then when I led communion, I was to ask them, you know, what makes them feel like they can take communion? And, and they, they're all open and they're sharing and... And so it's very much an interactual service. They love singing or listening to songs, and it goes for an hour and 15 minutes. And so my hope and prayer is we're going to have a couple of teams of two or three um, that are going to go in every, four, every um, two months. But watch this space. I've approached some people and some people have approached me, but we've got to start to work on that. So there you go. So that's where we're at. Well, as you know... Um, a few weeks ago, I started a sermon series, and this series is all based on that verse that is just hammered to us at Christmas time, Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6. Isaiah here is speaking a prophecy, obviously, about Jesus. And he says that this baby is going to come, and this baby is going to be special. More than that, this baby that's going to come is going to be unique. According to Isaiah, He's going to be given some great titles, and they are Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, and the Prince of Peace. Even though this prophecy of Jesus was given hundreds of years before he was born, from this side of the coin, when we see it, we can see that it does fit Jesus' ministry so well. We also realise the beauty of this passage when we understand the background it was in written in a time of utter darkness. The people were trapped in a land of injustice. The government was corrupt. The judges were corrupt. Even the priests were corrupt. Worse than that, their enemies around them were growing stronger and stronger while their nation was growing weaker and weaker. It was a time of worry and injustice for these Israelite people. The people had turned from God and were discovering that they found life elsewhere. But it was out of that, it was in that context 
that Isaiah prophesies to them, there's one who is coming that is going to change everything. So, so far we've covered the first one, which was wonderful counsellor. Wonderful, I said, was a word in the Old Testament that was reserved only for God. It was only used 29 times. Jesus, as our counsellor, is not just someone who gives advice or listens to us well. He knows us intimately. Jesus is the wonderful counsellor who can direct us and reveal the help we need in the times that we need it. Then last week, Mighty God. And I said, this is one I struggled with, the title, but we pulled it apart and we said, what Isaiah is saying is the wording is El Gabor, which is Jesus is going to be a God who is mighty to save. He is the one who gave himself to the mission of saving us. And today we come to Eternal Father. As I said, I mentioned last time I struggled with the term Mighty God. Well, I'm not sure how you go with this one. But to tell you the truth, every time I used to hear this at Christmas time, I struggled with this one more than any other title in our scriptures. This title of Jesus being given the title Eternal Father. Of all the names attributed to Jesus in Isaiah 9-6, Everlasting Father intrigued me the most because I understood it the least. Sure, Jesus being everlasting, that's easy to grasp. I can tick that box. Our scripture teaches us that Jesus is everlasting. He was there in the beginning. He was involved in the creation of all things. In fact, nothing exists that he's not a part of. Scripture also teaches that he truly is the Lord of the future. I know that Christ has and will live forever. I know that Christ will reign as King of kings and Lord of lords throughout all eternity. That's why when people talk about Jesus being everlasting, people often quote that verse in Hebrews chapter 13 that Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. So I don't struggle with Jesus being called everlasting. It is the next word that caused me much confusion. The word father. Think about it. As I said, I'm very much outside of the square thinker. I don't know if this has ever happened to you. Here's the reason I really struggle with this. There are three persons in the Trinity. We have God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Three in one, yet three different. How can Jesus the Messiah, the second person of the Godhead, be called Everlasting Father, the first person of the Godhead? Is Isaiah... Oops, sorry. Is Isaiah denying the Trinity by calling him Father? Or is he just confusing what's going on? Now, I know it's impossible... You may believe it or not, but it's impossible for us to understand it and explain the Trinity. But if I call Jesus our eternal father, it creates a dilemma in my mind because we only have one father, and that is God the Father. There is one father in the Godhead, there is one father in the Trinity, and the Holy Spirit is also in the Trinity. We even just sang a song. We give praise to who? The Father the Son, and the Spirit. The Son is not the Father. The Spirit is not the Father. The Father is the Father. 
I mean, didn't Jesus himself, while he's here on earth, he said he came to do one thing. He came to reveal one thing. What did he come to reveal? The Father. There lays the trouble in my mind. People say, how come you don't sleep at night? These are the reasons I don't sleep at night. I don't know, you know, like some people read these verses and, oh, yeah, Jesus, Father, great, yeah, let's move on and go and play footy. Do you ever stop to think about what you're actually reading? How is Jesus given the title Eternal Father? Many have made the same comment regarding these words as I have. How does this work out? What on earth is Isaiah doing here? I don't know if you've ever read that verse and gone through sleepless nights like I have. How can Jesus be Father? Because he's not the Father. He is not the Father. Yet, what's Isaiah saying? Why does Isaiah call him or give him this title, Eternal Father? Well, I've done some study on it because otherwise I wouldn't sleep. Not that I promised to come up with some divine revelation, but I hope today we're going to learn some things and even if your mind's not at rest, then my mind was. But before we continue, um, let's ask for wisdom, eh? Father God in heaven, we thank you for your word. And Father, you're a God of clarity. And you're a God who wants us to understand who you are um, for our day-to-day lives. Father, you don't want us to be confused about your gospel or about your message to us. And Father, I pray that as we open up your word today or we look at this Uh, May it bring clarity, but also encouragement about what Isaiah is really mentioning here. In Jesus' name, amen. So let's consider something. Let's consider the Trinity. Well, every person I read about this verse says, whenever you read Isaiah 9.6, there's one thing you must understand. Neither Trinitarian or non-Trinitarian concerns are being discussed here. He is not promoting the Trinity. He is not dispromoting the Trinity In fact, Isaiah isn't giving us a statement at all about the Trinity. He is not talking about the Trinity whatsoever. So if you're going to try and build an argument on the Trinity, like, as I said, the JWs do on Isaiah 9-6, you're starting from the wrong point. Because Isaiah isn't teaching us a theology on the Trinity. He's teaching us something very different. Isaiah isn't teaching us that God the Son, the second person of the Trinity, is the same as the first person of the Trinity. The text has no bearing upon the positions or titles of the Trinity. It doesn't change anything regarding the Trinity because that's not what he's on about. That's not his starting point. Most scholars say it is not the Messiah's role within the Godhead that Isaiah is teaching about here. Isaiah doesn't even have the Trinity in mind, they believe, because it wasn't around, when he even called Jesus the title Everlasting Father. It was the Messiah's character towards us, they believe, that Isaiah had in mind when he gave him this title, Everlasting Father. Isaiah had that this child that's been promised to you will not only be a wonderful counsellor, will not only be a mighty God to save you, He will be an everlasting father to you. Isaiah isn't teaching, Isaiah is teaching a major character that this baby will bring. A character of a loving father. Does that make sense? So this verse does not indicate, so this verse does not indicate the relationship of Jesus within the Trinity. He's not even focusing on that. What does it indicate? What's his point? 
the relationship of this baby with those who are reading it and hearing it now when he comes, the character of this baby will be that of a loving father. So that's the Trinity argument taken care of. But now there's one other thing we need to think about. If Isaiah is really wanting to say a great purpose and character of this child will be an everlasting father, we all have different images of father go through our head. Whenever you hear the word father, I'm quite sure you will instantly have things go through your head. Some people have very positive relationships with their father. Some have come from extremely broken negative relationships with a father. So I guess you understand, to help us understand the relationship and the character that Isaiah is wanting us to know about, we must first understand what meaning is he coming from. When he writes this everlasting father, what is the meaning? Well, in the Hebrew, the phrase literally is this. He will be the father of eternity. That's the literal translation. The Hebrew word eternity has the emphasis of forward-looking. It carries the idea of timelessness, without end. It's never going to stop. That's what most scholars say our English word everlasting is the best translation. As the everlasting father, this Messiah, this father, this Messiah will be a father to us all. For how long? How long? It will never end. This character will never end. That's why some of the early translations of the Bible give the everlasting father as father of the future age. When you go back and look at it, that's what it was about. Isaiah is speaking of a child who will be born some 700 years in the future, yet by using this term he makes it clear. It describes one of, those, one of that baby's greatest characteristics and purpose in being born. This child will have the character and purpose to be like a father to his people. All that a good father is, he will be. More than that, he will be to it forever. He will be everlasting father. His fatherhood will last forever. He will be a good father for all time. He will be a good father forever. He is the everlasting good father in eternity. When I understand Christ's title of everlasting father in those senses, when it's looking at character, it's much less puzzling to me. And it's much easier for me to say, yeah, Jesus is an everlasting father. He's not the everlasting father. He is a everlasting father. Because he's fatherly, father-like in his treatment towards us. I mentioned the Hebrew word before, Jesus is the same yesterday and today and forever. Again, these are another one of these verses that people just wash over, but have you ever stopped to think about what does that mean? Because let's be blunt, he's not. Jesus is not the same yesterday, today and forever. You may think, oh, yes, he is. Well, no, he's not. His appearance isn't the same yesterday, today and forever. That changes. His position isn't the same yesterday, today and forever. That changed. So what is this writer of Hebrews talking about? What doesn't change? Well, it's his nature. It is who he is. It is what he believes. It is what he does that never changes. His nature, his character is the same yesterday, today and forever. 
And so it is with that in mind that today we can look at how Jesus displays this everlasting Father to us. And the good thing is, is these qualities never change. They remain the same yesterday, today and forever. So, let's learn some stuff. Christ's character as Father does not change. This is good news because remember the character of the Messiah that Isaiah, that he's promising. He's promising a wonderful counsellor, a mighty God, ever eternal Father and Prince of Peace. Yep, they're all still true today. How do we know? Well, here's the fact. Jesus being part of the Trinity means he is God. Jesus being God means that the character of Jesus does not change. His mercy, his love, his grace, his forgiveness does not change. From the rising of the sun of a new day to the setting to the sun of the end of the day, Jesus' character does not change. It is the same yesterday, it will be the same tomorrow and forever. I mentioned last time I preached how one of the stories that I turn to time and time again is the story of the prodigal son. Like many, I love this parable that was spoken about, that Jesus spoke about. Now, I know it's just a story. Um, however, I remember at college when we did the parables of Jesus, we had a Jewish person come in and teach it. It was incredible. It was one of the best things. And um, he just brought the parables to life because he put them in context of what they would mean. And there's a tradition that um, he said Jesus actually pulled out stuff from real life and spoke about it. Well, he actually said that there's teaching in the Jewish part that, yeah, that he believes that the people he was speaking to, this is actually based on either a semi-true true thing that had happened and about a father and two sons and people would know actually what he was talking about. But that aside, there's still a lot of great truths in this scripture. The parable for me has something, little gems in it. It has so many of things that are amazing. The son goes off into a far country and squanders all his money. And when he has no friends, no money, and ends up in a pig pen, he thinks this. What am I going to do? I know what I'll do. I'll get up and I'll go back to dad. So here... He is in the most humiliating place a Jewish boy could possibly be, yet he starts to think, I'm going to go home to my father. This thought staggers me. Again, I think too much into things. But anyway. Have you ever stopped to think about after all he's done, and like when the Jewish person taught us, it was incredible what this boy had done and how much hurt and shame he'd brought upon this family and what he'd done is almost unforgivable. After all that, what little part in this boy's brain gave him the idea that he would even be welcome back? What part of him actually thought, yep, I know, I've done this, I've done this, I've done this, I've done this, but I'm going home. I mean, I know if it was me and my thoughts, I would think... Man, I don't know if I'm going to go home and just think, yeah, let's play happy families. And... But this son thinks, no, even after all I've done, I'm going to go home to dad. 
How could he think such thoughts? Seriously, how could he get to that point after all he's done? Well, here is what Jesus' point of the parable is. The son came to that thought and decided on to take that thought for one reason and one reason alone. He decided to go home because he knew what his father was like. He knew the character of his dad. He knew what he was going to get. This boy knew it was no good going back to his friends because their character was once the money's gone, so are we. It was no good staying with the employer because their character was, we're going to treat you badly. The boy knew the best help he could get in his situation was to go home to dad. But as I said, how did he know he'd be welcomed? Well, the answer, he knew what kind of dad he had. He knew the character of his dad. He knew that the character of his father did not change regardless of what he did. For sure, the relationship with his dad may never be the same because of his actions, but he knew the character of the father was consistent. He knew that his dad had always been full of forgiveness in the past and always will be. He knew his dad had always been full of mercy and always will be. He knew that his dad had always been full of love and you guessed it, he always will be. This is what this Jewish person brought out when we were studying this. He knew that his relationship with the father had changed, but he also knew that his father showed mercy, love and kindness to anyone that came in. He had hope that the door would be open to him when he returned. You know the beautiful part of that? Our eternal father always leaves the door open for us to come home again. No matter how far we've roamed from Jesus, he's waiting. His character never changes. If God has shown you mercy before, if God has shown you loving kindness before, if God has blessed you before, then guess what? He will do the same again. The character of Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forevermore. Christ's compassion never changes. People have often said one of the greatest things we have to offer a human being is compassion. Or another one has said the world would truly be different if people had compassion upon one another. Again, I went to the dictionary and I looked up this word compassion because it's something we throw around. What's it mean? Well, there are a few things. It says compassion is suffering with another person. It's a painful sympathy. It's a sensation of sorrow excited or distressed by the misfortunes of others. And so you understand, compassion is a mixture of passion compounded with love and sorrow. We have many, 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 I don't need to even do this, many examples throughout the Gospels where we find Jesus full of compassion on those that are brought towards him. Many people came to him with their hurts and their pains some at inappropriate times, but he didn't do the normal thing and tell them to rack off. I'm too busy. He had compassion. If I go back to the story of the prodigal son, when the son decided to go home, he had a plan. His plan was to go to dad and say, Dad, as you know, I've done really bad. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Um, but 
How about I work for you? So he goes home with this plan. I'm sure as he's walking home, oh no, this is what I'd be doing, he would have been practising his speech over and over and over again. He would have wanted to make sure he had it down pat. But notice what Jesus points out. While the son was still a long way off from home, his father saw him and his father was filled with compassion. His father ran, threw his arms around his neck and kissed him. Because the father was so filled with compassion when he saw his son, it changes the whole situation. Regardless of how much that son had practised his speech, he didn't even get to get a word out just about. He was just cut off. Because the father was filled with compassion, he ran to him and expressed his love to the son in a way that went beyond any of our understanding. Because the father was filled with compassion when he saw the son, it changes the whole situation. It changes the whole story. Compassion became his motivation for movement. Compassion made him get up and run to his son. When Jesus sees us in our times of distress, guess what? He has compassion upon us. He doesn't condemn us. He has compassion on us. When he sees the mess we've made of our lives, he doesn't say, you stupid idiot. He has compassion upon us. Satan will want to rob you and say you failed. Jesus says, no, I have compassion on you. When your life has been hard, when you think you can't go on, when you've been dealt a bad hand, when a disaster after disaster follows you around like a puppy, when the whole world seems to be falling around you, Jesus has compassion. Jesus not only has it, he's moved by it. And he comes to you. The compassion of Jesus moves him to rescue you. The compassion of Jesus moves him to save you. It's a good thing too, because we live in a world where we fail, where we get hurt, where we get abused, or where we just don't go the way we should. We live in a world where we get broken, scratched up, and dinged up. We get physically hurt, we get emotionally hurt, we get dents and bruises almost every day. We can have broken bones, broken relationships and broken hearts. That's the world in which we live in. But we're not alone. We have one who is moved because of our suffering. I'm not sure if you've ever heard the song by Scott Wisely Brown, He Will Carry You. It was big in the 80s. But it's a song affirms the compassion of our eternal Father has. These are his words. There is no problem too big, he cannot solve it. There is no mountain too tall, he cannot move it. There is no storm too dark, he cannot calm it. There is no sorrow too deep, he cannot soothe it. If he carried the weight of the world upon his shoulders, I know my brother, he can surely carry you. If he carried the weight of the world upon his shoulders, I know, my sister, he will surely carry you. How do we know? He said, come to me, all you who are weary, 
and I will give you rest. I'm not sure about you, but I'm glad there is one who's moved by my suffering. I'm glad there is one that not only sees my pain, but is moved by it. I'm glad there is one who will have compassion on me. I'm glad there is one who is moved because he loves me. And that one is Jesus, our eternal father. So Christ's character and compassion as father does not change. They are the same yesterday and today and forever. But the last one is good. His commitment as father to you never changes. In our last point today, we have two important words, commitment and father. Commitment is a word that has us doing something. Some are short commitments. You've got to be somewhere by 9 o'clock. That's a commitment, so you go. Other commitments are long. If you ever sign to buy a house, you're probably in a contract or a commitment for 30 years. The term father means different things to a lot of different people. And just the word father, as I said before, can provoke different feelings and emotions inside us. Everyone experiences with their earthly father is different. I've heard testimony of many people mention the commitment and input God displays as father in their lives. While I've also heard some say that fathers had no commitment at all to them. You know, regardless if you've had a great experience with your earthly father or a terrible experience with your earthly father, we can know 100% everyone can experience a committed and loving dad in Jesus Christ because he is our everlasting father. Our everlasting father, Jesus, is committed to us. And I said at the start, a key word in this title is everlasting. That was his main point. It is something that is going to go on. God came to earth so that he could know us, be with us, not just for a short time, but for all time. Isaiah's promise is this. The everlasting father isn't there for us during one period of time. It isn't just there for people who are struggling in the time that this book was written. The promise is for all generations to come. What does everlasting mean? It means forever. When this term is applied to Jesus, it is always a declaration of his faithfulness trustworthiness, his goodness, his love, and his mercy. That's what scripture reveals is eternal in Jesus Christ. God has promised to commit himself to us. Even Isaiah says it down the track. But you are our father. Though Abraham does not know us or Israel acknowledge us, you, O Lord, are our father, our redeemer, for old is your name. In our scripture, we have many verses like this one that promise the Father wants to be with us and he knows us. Look at this verse closely for a moment. The prophet Isaiah claims that even though Abraham and Israel didn't acknowledge them, God still does. What does that mean? Well, the prophet is writing to a people who turned their back on God. Remember that. These people had told him, no thanks, we're going to live life our way. But what Isaiah promising was, even though as a people they turned their back on God, God hadn't and won't turn his back on them. 
he was still their father and would always be committed to them. This is the same promise we have in Jesus as our eternal father. Through Jesus, that commitment to you and to me never changes. It's eternal. It is here for all of us and for all time. In ancient times, the father of a nation was viewed in much the same way as the father of a family. It was the father who was protect and provide for his children. In the same way, this child to be born will become a king or a father to the children of Israel for all time. He will protect and provide for them. And his role as protector and provider will not be limited or by death. It will go on and on. His role as father, protector and provider will continue for all time. The full identity of the Messiah is revealed in Isaiah's prophecy. In fact, God's people didn't see it. They had to wait. Some of them didn't get to see it. But we're on this side of the coin. We know the second person of the Trinity, Jesus Christ. He is God in flesh and everlasting Father. He still does protect and provides for his people, his church, and his world. By his death and resurrection, we are grafted into this family. Isaiah was right. We have one who is an everlasting father. He will not abandon us. He hasn't in the past and he won't in the future. His character as father does not change. His commission as a father does not change. And his commitment to a father does not change. Where to trust him, where to worship him, and where to commit to him as his children. Do you know, I love the gospel. People say to me, oh, Garth, sometimes you preach, it's just like you're tickling people's ears and you want to encourage them. And I said, well, guess what? I have no, no qualms about that because I don't care about tickling people's ears and want to encourage them because I believe that's what God does. God wants to tickle your ears. God wants to touch your heart. Why do we live in a world where we think, we live, you know, God just wants to condemn us and do this and do this and do that. God wants us to come in and sit under his grace. God wants us to come in and know he's a loving dad. When the disciples came to Jesus and said, teach us how to pray, he said, when you pray, pray like this. What was the title? Our Father. Paul in Romans says, we as God's children can cry out, my father. Do you know what that means? That means my daddy. That's what it means. It is the picture of a child sitting on a dad's lap. That's the God we follow. We follow one who wants, has done everything for us to be in this loving, gutsing relationship with him. That's what we're called to be. That's what we're called to do. I don't say to you, I hope my words have brought encouragement to you, but I sure hope God does. Jesus as our, has a fatherly character to us, and he still does. We can know that every morning you get up, regardless of what you're going to face. We have one. That his character doesn't change, his compassion doesn't change, and his commitment to you doesn't change.
If you don't know that, if that's not the God you follow, then please don't leave today without finding out how do I follow that kind of God? Who is this God that this clown up the front's talking about? Because as I said, he wants to run to you. He wants to kiss you, throw his arms around your neck and dress you up like a king. Do you deserve it? No. Don't ever think we deserve anything. I know Jeffrey Bingham always used to say, if God gave us the love we deserve, we'd all be dead. And he was right. We're going to go into a time of communion. But how about before we do, let's pray, hey?